All right, students. Today is your review lecture on the Purgatorio, on the entirety of the Purgatorio, on the first 33 and only 33 cantos of the Purgatorio. All right, let's get into it. So, all souls in Purgatory are saved, all souls in Hell are damned. Recall, just as Hell is nine circles that descend along the left turning path, Purgatory is seven terraces along the right turning path. There are seven terraces for seven deadly sins, as they are colloquially called, but as we'll see defined later in the lecture, are seven deadly vices. Recall that vices are the inclinations which lead to sins. Sins are the uh, specific actions themselves. And here are the seven deadly vices as they were in the order that we go through them. Pride, envy, three, anger, four, sloth, five, avarice slash prodigality. Recall that Statius is prodigal, not avarice. We'll talk about him soon. Gluttony, number six, and seven, lost. And then at the top we will see terrestrial paradise with the possession of biblical symbols, and a history of the church, as well as meeting our new um, guide at that time, the third guide, Beatrice, after having met our second guide in Canto 21, Statius, who will be compared to Luke, or Luke's version of the newly risen Christ. All right, big difference between purgatory and hell is that even though in hell sinners sin, and in purgatory sinners have sinned, that in purgatory characters are saved because they have recognized the fact that they sinned, whereas they refuse to recognize in the Inferno, that is the major difference between the characters, not the severity of their crime, like the difference between, like, say, federal and state prison. All right, know that uh, purgatory, in purgatory, what is done is that during the day, uh, expiation occurs, work occurs during the crowd, in, you know, so in amongst the crowd, they have uh, large boulders on their back, but at night, they must reflect, and so this is how you make progress in the world. You work during the day, you reflect on the work during the day, you make revisions, and then you work in a more efficient and slightly better way the next day, and over time, this makes a big difference in the world. All right, good. Know that these are the three steps. A lot of people have forgotten this. The three steps of penance that will be indicated by the three steps which the angel in Canto 10 in front of Purgatory proper will be uh, sitting upon. Recognition, which will be marked by the white step. Contrition, by a cracked dark purple one. And penance, through the blood red step. Know also that souls in the Purgatorio are not allowed to look back. They are not allowed to indulge in nostalgia like Casella and uh, Dante wrongfully attempted to do in the presence of Cato on the shores of Purgatory. All right, structural similarities between uh, the Inferno and the Purgatorio, and I even mentioned some about the Paradiso here. The first ten cantos or so exist, uh, at least the first nine, exist outside of Purgatory proper, and just like the first ten cantos of the Inferno exist outside of lower Yes, we'll notice also that it's the same case in the Paradiso. The first ten cantos are devoted to the first three spheres of heaven, which are obscured by a conical shadow of the earth, which means that they are obscured by sin, but when we get to the sphere of the sun, there will no longer be a conical shadow. And so we see a parallelism between each of the three canticles there. Know that. Also know that we receive a new guide in Canto 21, just like we sort of received a new guide in the Inferno in Canto 21, we had the Malabronte. Whereas Statius will steer us clear, uh, the Malabranca, as you know, wanted to do great harm to us. Also know that Virgil would disappear in Canto 30 and be replaced by Beatrice there. All right, time. Know that time takes place in Dante's Purgatorio. There is day and night. Time will not be present in the Paradiso. It was not present in the Inferno. You couldn't even see the stars at that time. All right, all right. What else do I? All right, good. So let's get into the structure of Purgatory as a place itself. The very first place that we get to in Purgatory is the shore. The shore of Purgatory is itself called anti-Purgatory, and it comprises two different distinct sorts of sinners. There are the excommunicated, who are represented by Manfred, who have to wait 30 times the time they were excommunicated in order to get back into 
the world recall that, uh, or excuse me, in order to get into purgatory proper and work off their sin itself to get to celestial paradise, know that Manfred was himself the son of Frederick, who is one of the heretics in Canto 10, and that also he is the grandson of Empress Constance, who is one of the nuns that we met in Paradiso uh, 3. All right. There are also the late repentant in anti-purgatory. They are themselves split into three categories. There are the apathetic, represented by Balacqua, his very lazy friend. The unabsolved due to violent death. That's Blancante de Montefeltro, Guido de Montefeltro's son. Recall that Guido was taken down to hell by a black cherubim, but his, uh, or his son was taken up by St. Francis, or rather an angel, to heaven, indicating that just because your family is bad or the root that you come from is negative or evil does not mean that you will be evil. Recall that one of the major themes of the Purgatorio and of, I would say, potentially life is that you have free will and you are not overdetermined by the stars or your horoscope or your family or your wealth or where you're born. Uh, these are all points that Dante makes very powerfully. Recall also in Canto 5, strongly parallel to Francesca from Canto 5 of the Inferno is Pia Tolomei. Pia Tolomei. Uh, she does not tell the whole story of how she cheated on her husband and then was killed for it. She very humbly does not leave, or does not mention all those parts. She also does not make excuses for herself and also is a victim of violence from her husband in the same way that Francesca was, uh, sadly enough. In any case, then we have also the negligent ruler. Sordello is the big example of that. Recall that he's uh, described like lion and that he comes from Mantua just as Virgil comes from Mantua. We have themes of rebirth here. I'm going to move on from that. And also remember that you can see the stars, and we will get several, uh, or we got several um, references to the constellations, the movements of the heavens, and how those uh, help to orient oneself within place and time in the world. In any case, the guardian of purgatory is Cato. Cato lived 95 to 46 BC. He was a Roman military leader. He committed suicide after the defeat of Pompeii because he did not want to live in an empire, but rather a republic. He has four stars on his face. Reflecting four stars that we can only see now that we're in purgatory. The idea being that they were in some way not present in the inferno. Those four stars indicate the four cardinal virtues, named cardinal virtues, because they orient you in the world in the same way that the cardinal directions orient you. And those are A, moderation, which is often called temperance. B, justice. C, prudence. And D, fortitude. I have some interesting things to say about prudence when we get to Canto 10 of the Paradiso. Um, and the two slash three circles that look like faces of the clock, they each have 12 uh, great wise men on them, as if they help to orient you in thought in the same way that the clock helps you to orient in time. In any case, I, I will make a connection then between prudence and the three eyes on one of the prudent, or one of the ladies who represents prudence in the divine procession that we'll see between Cantos 28 and 33 later today. Also, fourth, uh, or excuse me, uh, practical virtue, also called cardinal virtue, is fortitude. That's also just bravery. So moderation or temperance, justice, prudence, fortitude, and that's what we have. All right, remember Casella. <clears throat> As I said earlier, one of the first or penitents that we meet on the shores of purgatory is Casella. Casella tries to sing a song with Dante, a song of nostalgia, because he, like so many people on anti-purgatory, has just lost his body, just lost his home, just lost his way of life, and must turn, turn towards new things. He tries to sing a song 
uh, uh, <clears throat> talking about love that has been lost. And Cato shows up and yells at the men and reminds them that they need to not look back and be looking forward and be focusing on expiation and that they need to be using their time more intelligently, which uh, I, I think is very interesting. Cato seems like the sort of person that might argue against you watching a TV show several times in a row. Uh, and perhaps I can speak to that at some point. In any case, Manfred. A couple things about him. Recall that he was excommunicated. He was excommunicated twice, once by Pope Alexander IV, Pope Urban IV, that he was the son of Frederick II, and the grandson of uh, Empress Constance, and then also Frater Albergo from down in the Ninth Circle of the Inferno was the one that killed him at dinner. Also, we learned here that prayer speeds one's descent, or excuse me, ascent, up the mountain of purgatory, So, uh, which we'll see uh, uh, among some of the poets up in the Sixth and the Seventh circles are, excuse me, with Ferrisi Donati, we'll see that his wife Nella got him up there rather quickly. In any case, excommunication, like I said earlier, uh, results in having to spend 30 times the time excommunicated in anti-purgatory before ascending purgatory proper. All right, with the apathetic, like I said, we meet Balakwa and the late repentant, we find out, have to stay in anti-purgatory for as long as they negligently delayed their repentance on earth. So a little bit different from excommunication, make sure to Acknowledge those differences in your study. All right. Amongst the late repentant, the second division, the, the uh, 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 unabsolved because of violent death, we met Boncante de Montefeltro as well as Lapia. Recall that Boncante, as I said earlier, was uh, killed at Battle of Campaldina, 1289, June 11th. That is a battle that Dante uh, fought at. And some people suggest that actually Boncante potentially is a figure for men that Dante may have had to kill or a person himself that Dante may have had to kill, but unlike his father Guido, he does not go down to hell because of his actions, because of his recognition of his sin and his contrition for it, uh, but, uh, but his father did because of his lack of contrition and, in fact, his attempt to use logic against uh, the devil, who apparently is a logician, uh, we found out. All right, Pia, just like Francesca, also killed by her husband, also an adulteress, also in the fifth canto, though this time in the Purgatorio, not in the Inferno. So again, we see the Purgatorio reemphasizing the theme that it is not the sin itself that gets you where you are going, but your recognition or your perception of the sin and your place in it, your agency. Do you acknowledge the fact that you sinned, or do you just claim that something happened that you happen to be involved with? The keys lost themselves, as it were. In any case, meet Sordello. He's from Mantua, as I said, which is where Virgil is from, and so they both quite like each other. And then Sordello likes. Uh, uh, um, uh, Virgil even more because he finds out that he's Virgil and uh, is himself a poet uh, finding, or excuse me, is himself a fan of this poet in any case. Uh, also, Sordello is quite critical of Italy, which is a common theme throughout the Inferno Purgatorio and Paradiso, of course. We then see the theological virtues mentioned in Absentia. Virgil says the only reason that he's in hell is because he lacked them. Recall that they are represented by the colors of the Italian flag, white, green, and uh, red, also the colors of Christmas, and they are hope, green, faith, white, and charity, sometimes also called love, red. All right, very good. Sordello talks about day and night. Recall that the souls in purgatory are not assigned a fixed place. They can move around during the day, but not during night just because their wills are weakened for some reason. They just sit around at night and reflect, very much like how most humans sit around at night and reflect. Uh, they'll either talk to each other during meals, They'll read stories, they'll watch them on TV, that sort of thing, or on Instagram, whatever it <coughs> happens to be. Oh, right. All right, we then get our first drama, a piece of drama that prefigures the entrance into purgatory proper, so the end of the first ten cantos. This drama 
that plays out at the beginning of Purgatory parallels the drama that plays out at the end. So just as we get a biblical procession in the procession of church history at the end of Purgatory in Terrestrial Paradise, right before we enter the place of expiation, we get a playing out of what happens in Purgatory. Two angels see a snake that's licking its own back and trying to get through the gate of Purgatory. They then, with flaming swords, fly at it like eagles of God and keep it from entering in there. The idea being that those angels are supposed to represent the intellect and willpower of a man that is used to expiate the sin from his body. So this place of purgatory will purge sin in the body politic of humans in the same way that each sin must, or each sinner must, much, excuse me, must purge the sin from himself. The idea being that when all the humans purge all the sin from themselves, they will live in a living what? Heaven. Paradise. And that's a great idea. In any case, recall that red indicates charity, green hope, white faith. Those are the three theological virtues. They are distinct from the four cardinal virtues. They will be uh, even represented distinctly as four women in red to the left wheel of the divine chariot, which will indicate the church and the divine procession in terrestrial paradise. And the three theological virtues will be represented as in red, white, and green as three ladies representing the three holy or theological or Christian virtues in terrestrial paradise in the divine procession. All right, good, 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 good. All right, then, recall, there are four days spent in the purgatorio, and therefore three nights, each one of those three nights, Dante has a significant dream. The first dream is about the dream of an eagle and Ganymede. An eagle picks up the young, beautiful Trojan youth named Ganymede, takes him to a volcano, essentially, drops him into that volcano or fire that also prefigures the act of purgatory. You must, yourself, using the will of God, or by the will of God, using your own will, conjoining your, uh, uh, th these are new paradiso concepts, contingent will with uh, absolute will, um, purge yourself of sin. While that is happening, St. Lucy actually comes down and picks up Dante and moves him to the gate of purgatory so that he is himself transported there in the very same way that Dante was transported to the gate of Dis, not by himself, but by Phlegias, the second ferryman of the second river of the Inferno. Cool. All right. Good. He makes it to that gate. As I said earlier, at that gate, there is an angel. There are angels as guardians of each gate of purgatory, so seven of them. He is on three different, um, he or she, they don't really have gender, these, these, uh, these angels, on three steps. As I told you earlier, these three steps indicate the three states of penance. Smooth, first one. White, recognition of sin. Dark, purple, cracked one. Indicates contrition, means feeling sorrowful, sorrowful for one's failures. Third red one, red is blood, indicates satisfaction. You have given forward your time, energy, and effort in order to make up for the mistake that you made. And this is itself also the process of purgatory. So we have symbol upon symbol upon symbol of what happens in the purgatory. Burning out the sin of yourself with Ganymede and the eagle. Uh, keeping the snake out of the garden with the angels and that uh, divine interplay. And then also these three steps. Step. Hmm. Interesting how a multiplication of symbols indicates the reality of the phenomenon they wish to indicate. In any case, the angel also puts seven P's on Dante's face. One P for each uh, step of purgatory. Recall that those P's could represent three different Latin words. Peccati, which means sins. Peni, from which we get the word penalty or penal system, which means punishments. Or piage, which comes from plagi in uh, Latin, which means wounds, which is where we get the words plagues from. Um, and so, at the end of each terrace, recall that Dante has the wing of an angel uh, whisk off one of the peas from his head and he becomes lighter each time. 
almost as if he is less bodily, more intellectual, more free. It's like they are bound with him. And if you see a Christmas carol uh, at the end of this week, as I'm going to, you'll see that it has a very similar message as this man goes through a dreamscape over the course of a night with three different guides and is attempting to get the bonds of his own will off of him. He's trying to become less avaricious and become more kind-hearted and so freer. In any case, I'm talking about Scrooge. The two keys that this angel here, he was given by the first pope. The first pope was St. Peter. St. Peter gave him the two keys of gold and silver. Gold indicating power, silver indicating reflection, represented by the celestial objects of the golden one in the sky during the day, being the sun, and the silver one at the night, which reflects the light of the sun, being the moon. And those are the two keys to getting to heaven, to use your power or energy during the day to work and to use your mind to reflect on your work during uh, the night so that the next day you work in a more efficient, slightly better way and keep to the path so that you do not swim in circles or go in circles in some disoriented way. In any case, we talked about vices and uh, sins already, and then we get to the very first terrace of pride. We're going to go very quickly through these terraces and get to or terrestrial paradise as quickly as we can. Now, a couple things. Recall in Purgatory proper, there's a structure to every single terrace that is the same. First, you see an example of the expiating virtue. In the case of pride, we see examples of humility. The first example of the expiating virtue is always of Mary. So here we see an example of Mary being humble. Uh, we then will see the sinners in the second canto, or in the second part. Here it does happen to be two cantos, or the second canto, because there are three cantos of pride. And then the third part, the third canto in this case, uh, canto 12 after 11 and 10, you see examples of the vice that is being expiated. So first you see the virtue that expiates, humility. Then you see the sinners themselves. We'll see uh, Umberto Aldebrandeschi, Odorisi D'Agubio, and Provenzal Salvani. Uh, and we'll make some comments about him. And then we'll see examples of 13 different uh, proud uh, uh, individuals and people, the Trojans included, as well as Nimrod and Lucifer. In any case, uh, and also Briaris. Now, the punishment of the proud. Remember that the proud carry a rock on their back just as they uh, looked down on people as if they were on a rock. And the, the definition is, O proud Christians, wretched and exhausted, who sick in mind and not seeing a right, go confidently in the wrong direction. Pride is a sickness of the mind, a failure to perceive self and the world and reality uh, uh, correctly so that one has an inflated or over-enlarged idea of one's place in the world. You have a small view of everybody around you and the world. You have a large view of yourself as if you are, in fact, the world itself rather than a part of the world itself. Very interesting example of that is an example of sort of Japanese art is there will be like sort of a, a huge pastoral scene on a mountain and there will be like a tiny little guy that you can barely see off to the side and it's called something like Man and Nature and that, I, I think that gets the right idea. And that would be the right idea of thinking if you were very proud. That <coughs> nature, very big and strong and will obviously kill you and produce you. And you're very, very small. And, well, that's what these proud people need to realize. In any case, the examples of the corrective virtues are placed above their heads. The first one is Mary. Mary being told by Gabriel that she's going to be the mother of God. Unlike Niobe, uh, who had to have her children killed because of her hubris and thinking that her children were uh, in some way greater than God or, or greater than the gods of children. Apollo and Artemis in this case, uh, Mary accepts this with great humility. Uh, you know, you might think that if you're going to bear a child who is a god, then you might be rather proud about that. In any case, she's very humble. All right, then we met, and I'm not going to talk about them much, people who represented different sorts of pride. 
Umberto Aldebrandeschi, who is proud of his family. Uh, we'll see, actually, Dante be very proud of his family in Canto 16 of Paradiso with uh, Cachuita, and we'll have to see whether he is in some way being vicious or sinful because of that. Odorisi D'Agubio, who's proud of his abilities, very like Dante, as he'll say. He's an illuminator, just like Dante's a poet. And then Provenzano Salvani, who, of course, uh, died in the Battle of Monteperti, which his uh, 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 aunt, Sam Sapia, who we're going to meet in the very next terrace, wanted him to die in, and, well, she got her wish. In any case, samples of vice. We saw Nimrod, Niobe, Arachne, Saul, Rehoboam, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Trojans. We saw Lucifer. we got to move on to Envy, though. So, Cantos 13 and 14, we see the envious. They are punished by having iron wire sewing shut their eyes, the contrapasso being that envy comes from the Latin word invidia, which means not being able to see. These people literally cannot see, just like the angry that come after them that are being blinded by black smoke coming off their uh, sort of overheating selves. In any case, we meet Sabia here. Recall that she was Sienese. Her nephew was Provenland Salvani. She was so envious that she wanted, in a Schadenfreude sort of way, to see her own people and uh, her own people, like her own, not only uh, uh, the Sienese, but also the uh, her own family, Provenzal and Salvani, died because of her envy. Envy makes you not see what it is you really want. It's very similar to sort of Achilles wanting the Achaeans to be injured, not realizing that that would end up hurting his own best friend uh, and his other friends, in any case. And so, we see also here another example of the fact that Mary is always the first example of expiating art in each of these terraces, and then we just have to keep moving on. Recall also that part of the idea of the purgatory is that you reflect on yourself and that Dante starts to reflect on himself at the end of this canto. He's seen the envious, he's seen the proud, and he thinks, I don't need to spend much time on the terrors of envy, I don't envy many people, but those proud, I'm going to have quite a weight on my back, I imagine. And, you know, he did rewrite the Lord's Prayer and is literally writing a poem about art, which is made by God, that he claims that he can represent to some extent sent well, and that might be a proud thing in your way of thinking. So, the third terrace. Third terrace is the terrace of the wrathful. We would say this is like the Achilles terrace, even though we know that he's down amongst the lustful because of Dante's perception of him not having read Homer, but, read account, but having read accounts of Homer, and knowing that, of course, Achilles, one of the reasons that he may have died was because of a tete-a-tete -tete he attempted to have with one of the daughters of Priam, which led to his death, uh, according to medieval accounts. Very different from Homer and the Iliad. In any case, the wrathful are blinded by acrid smoke, which makes the terrace, third terrace of seven, darker than hell. The contrapasso being that anger blinds one to the light of what, or the truth of one's situation. And so, we meet here Marco Lombardo. Marco Lombardo talks a couple, about a couple of very important things. The relationship between the stars, astrology, and free will, as well as the church and the state, and the appropriate teacher of your will, which is ultimately the laws, even more than your own parents, he says. So, what does he say about the stars versus um, your own personal decisions? Well, unlike Bernetta Latini from Canto 15 amongst the Sodomites 7.3 of the Inferno, he says that the, uh, he does not say, if you follow your star, you cannot fail to reach your glorious harbor. He says, listen, even if it is the case that your soul travels through constellations in the eighth sphere of heaven and comes down to the earth and first initiates your motion, sort of like we would say, you do have genes, and so you do have a certain temperament, and you are a certain way when you are born, you still make your own decisions. And so, if there is good and bad in the world, and there is plenty of bad in the world, the reason is because humans are uh, not doing the good things that they should. And so he puts personal responsibility in the hands of the people, not in the hands of the stars. He is the opposite of Renato Latini. In fact, when we get to Cantos 15, 16, 17 of the Paradiso, we will see a man talk about the stars and say something very similar to that named Cachuita, the uh, guide to the hunt, as it were. In any case, he also talks about 
uh, the will. In order to choose good, it needs to be correctly fashioned. It needs to be correctly fashioned through a good education and uh, through good laws of a community. So we're very happy that we have the Constitution here in America because apparently it makes us better than we would be if we had worse laws. The idea being that you are different from how you would be if you were French, if you were Italian, if you were Afghani, because they have different laws from America. That You have literally been shaped and your character has been shaped by the Constitution. So the next time you're being uh, feeling bored about hearing about Thomas Jefferson, know that he's had a much bigger effect on your life than perhaps you know. And so, okay, recall, the two sons theory that Marco puts forth is precisely his account of the church and the state. He said that Rome had two sons, two guiding lights. These two guiding lights having been the church and the state. The idea between these guiding lights is not that they become one and thus obscure the light of each other and become uh, corrupted by mixing together like ketchup and chocolate, not a very good uh, uh, combination even though they are both full of sugar, or, or, or even like say a Red Bull and chocolate chip cookies that you could have every day, just kidding. And uh, I know some, you know some people like that, y'all are young, you have interesting tastes. In any case, the idea is that you keep the Red Bull and the cookies in different meals and maybe you don't eat them at all, but y'all are young, so you can eat whatever you want. Uh, kind of, kind of. It does have an effect, and those aren't necessarily good habits, but I'm just kidding. In any case, the idea is that the church and the state were two guiding lights that were to remain separate. During the donation of Constantine in 336, when they were placed together, they became inextricably corrupted, like a, 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 a feces in a toilet, or in a, a, not, not in a toilet, but in a porta potty. And so all of a sudden, that's kind of a nasty concept. Well, that's what happened to these two very pristine things when you put them together. And that is Marco's perception, and that is Dante's perception. And in fact, when we get to St. Peter and hear him talk near the top of Paradiso, he will literally say that his, uh, that his, um, his seat has become a sewer full of blood and filth, which is terrible. Make sure you're focusing on this. All right, in any case, we also get an example here of gentleness. Gentleness is the expiating virtue of anger, and we see St. Stephen. St. Stephen, as you recall, was the first martyr, and recall very nastily that he was actually praying for the uh, saving of the sins, saving of the souls of the people who were stoning him while he was being killed by them, which I think is uh, fairly gnarly, just to use a Californianism. All right, uh, Dante again recognizes his own errors and sees that this, this gentleness is perhaps something that he could uh, uh, use himself. All right, let's get to the softball, the fourth terrace of the seven terraces, of purgatory. The slothful appear in a tumult, running like a furious crowd of Bacantes, running and weeping, saying, hurry, hurry, and let no time be lost through lack of love. All right, good. Let's hear about love. Two sorts of love are now discoursed on in Canto 17, which I've told you is uh, part of the diametric center of the entire Paradiso. Recall that uh, Inferno is 34 Cantos, Paradiso, and Purgatorio 33 each, and which means the entire poem is 100. Canto, so the middle of the poem is Canto 16 or Canto 17 of the Paradiso, depending on how you define middle being 50 out of 100 or 51 out of 100. In any case, here Virgil talks about natural and rational love. Rational love can have an erroneous object. The sorts of vices that involve having rational love applied to a wrong object are the first three vices of the first three terraces of purgatory. They are pride, envy, and anger, which is also apparently why uh, part of the reason why envy and pride do not have their own terraces, or excuse me, their own circles in the inferno. Also know that envy and pride seem to be a part of every single sin or vice, that they are in a way foundational vices, that they, uh, they, they, they open the door to vice or sin, you might say. 
All right, the second way to inappropriately apply love, recall there are three that we learned about here, is to not have enough vigor. Well, to be slothful means to be apathetic, to be lazy. That means not having enough energy or vigor. And so to be slothful is not to apply enough love to your deeds, to lose too much time just to do a sloppy job. Not very good. And then, of course, the final three uh, vices, which will be prefigured by a siren in the second dream of Dante, involve too much vigor or too much pursuit of something, too much love for something. Avarice, too much love for money. Prodigality, too much love for spending money. Gluttony, too much love for food and drink. And, of course, lost too much love for physical delight. All right. In any case, yes, that is what we know. Uh, and then let's talk about this siren. So the second dream that Dante has is of a siren. She's at first ugly, and then she starts to sing, and then she becomes beautiful. This idea seems to be that when you see the effects of the vices of avarice, like in A Christmas Carol, or gluttony, like when you look at Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars uh, Return of the Jedi, or when you look at the effects of lust and see, like, say, the result of Pia Ptolemy's decision or Francesca's decision. They're very ugly, but when you indulge in the sins or the vices themselves, they seem very pleasant. And that seems to be the idea behind the siren's song here, the same siren that Ulysses saw. Recall that Ulysses, as well as nautical metaphors, make them, and similes, make themselves known all throughout the Purgatorio, as well as the Paradiso, and even, of course, the Inferno themselves. And so, this siren herself prefigures the sensual or carnal or fleshly sins of too much vigor. And those are, again, avarice and prodigality, gluttony and lust. Terraces 5, 6, and 7 of the Purgatorio. All right, then we get up, uh, Cantos 19 to 21, to avarice and prodigality. The souls on the fifth terrace purify themselves of their vice, avarice, or its sinful opposite prodigality by lying face down on the hard rock floor. They are weeping and praying, and they themselves, in a poetic sort of way, call out the examples of greed and its opposing virtue of generosity and poverty. And just to reiterate, the expiating virtue of avarice and prodigality, avarice is generosity, prodigality is poverty, obviously speaking. A good way to not spend too much money is to not have any money, like St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscan order who take a vow of poverty, which San Francisco, one of the richest cities in America, is named for very ironically. And uh, recall also that the expiating virtue of sloth is zeal, not a cardinal or a theological virtue. Recall that the expiating virtue of uh, wrath is gentleness, again, not a cardinal or a theological virtue. Envy is generosity, theological virtue, and humility of uh, pride, which is also not a theological or a cardinal virtue. All right, here we meet Pope Adrian V, the first pope that we meet in the Purgatorio. Recall that we meet the most amount of popes in the Inferno. We meet four of them. There, Pope Celestine included, who tells us about Pope Boniface being determined to go down there, which I have some issues for our account of free will, but I know that's what we think. In any case, these characters here, amongst the avaricious and prodigal, worldly concerned with worldly goods, much like the spirits in Mercury on Paradiso, which we'll talk about in the beginning of next semester. And then we feel a mountain quake. Mountain quake is a very interesting thing to have felt because random natural events like hail, snow, rain, fires do not happen in Purgatory proper. They happen on the shore but they do not happen in Purgatory proper because it is a perfect training facility for expiating sin. And so why did that mountain quake occur? Well, it occurred because a man just expiated all his sin and now has freed his will. His name is Statius. What do we need to know about Statius? Statius was the second guide of Dante, who we meet in Canto 21, just like we met the Malabronche, who were bad guides back in Canto 21 of the Inferno. He is compared to the new risen Christ, of Luke, one of the four evangelists, one of the four evangelists we'll see represented uh, around the chariot that indicates, or that represents 
the uh, the church and the divine procession, Cantos 28 to 33, but we need to get those. We have seven more to get through. Uh, and also, this man was himself a Roman citizen from the first century CE and wrote himself a couple poems that we need to know. Those two poems were the Thebaid and the Accolade, but unfortunately he did not finish the Accolade because he died uh, during the writing of the Accolade. And so we only have the first book. You can still read it, though. He was a great admirer of Virgil, who came just under a century before him, and know also that he has spent about 1,200 years expiating his sin, unlike the five years that Foresi Donati has spent. He apparently had quite a bit of sin. The most sinful, or the most sin he had, was prodigality. 500 years he spent amongst the prodigal, and then he spent 400 years amongst the slothful, and then 300 years unaccounted, doing other sins. And now he is going to help us learn about some things, uh, particularly how babies are made in Canto 26 of the Purgatorio. In any case, he mentions also the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD by Titus, which medieval Christians believe was just for their killing of uh, uh, Jesus in the place that Caiaphas, who was crucified horizontally amongst the hypocrites, recall, uh, in the part that they played in doing that. And that, um, ah yes, a couple other things. He, that he was made a poet by reading the Aeneid by Virgil. Recall that he mentions that Virgil is like a man who holds a candle behind himself, which does great good for those who come after him, but none for himself, because obviously Virgil is in limbo and in hell, whereas Statius gets to, unlike Marcia, but very much like Cato, be in purgatory and be on the way to being safe in heaven. And that it was his work, uh, Virgil's work, the Eclogue, and his talking about a golden age in Eclogue 4 in particular, that made uh, Statius uh, supposedly into a Christian. We have no historical evidence for this, but this is the narrative sort that Dante is telling to us. Ah, yes, and I just include this. Remember also in Terrace 5 we hear an account of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is the predecessor to the idea of uh, um, uh, Santa, and that this is an example, of course, of being generous uh, to us. All right, Terrace 6, the gluttonous. Too much love of food. We see two remarkable trees up there that instead of uh, providing fruit that make people hungry, they make them hungry, or excuse me, providing fruit that uh, fill out the hunger of people, they make them starve, they make them hungry, or and so the gluttons, just like the slothful had to run to expiate their lack of zeal, so do the gluttons have to starve to expiate their love of food and drink and learn to uh, uh, drink and eat uh, more super substantial, less actual substantial food, like the Golden Age people who didn't eat John the Baptist, who supposedly ate locusts, and uh, Roman women who apparently were very judicious in what they ate. Uh, they apparently did some intermittent fasting or something. In any case, the expiating virtue of gluttony is temperance. Recall that temperance or moderation is one of the cardinal virtues, one of the four of those. Make sure you focus. All right, good. The first example of temperance, of course, is the first uh, is from Mary, and as you recall, because I've mentioned this twice now, Mary is the first example of the expiating virtue in art on each of the terraces of purgatory. Remember, expiating art, sinner themselves, and then vicious art or representation of art which is vicious, or that represents the vice of the specific terrorist. Now, here amongst the sweet, or those who like sweets, we meet people who talk about the sweet new style. Two poets that were predecessors to Dante. Farisi Donati, who was his friend who shared Tinzone with him in salt poems, and Bonajunta da Luca, who was also uh, a, a wonderful poet, and uh, had some place in the creation of Italian ear lyric style, though did not create Italian lyric poetry. That was Guido Guinizelli, who will meet amongst the possible soon. All right, two things about uh, Frisi Donati. He is the brother 
of Gemma Donati, or sorry, the relative of Gemma Donati, the wife of Dante, and also is related to Corso Donati, Chianfa Donati, and of course, Picarda Donati, who we met in Canto Three of the Paradiso. He shared insulting sonnets called Tensone with Dante, uh, which they're both ashamed for at this point, and his face is so disfigured that his face looks like uh, an M with two O's above it, his eyes, which looks like the word Omo or or uh, Uomo in Italian, based on the Latin word homo, which means man, indicating the, uh, the reason for all man's suffering are himself. Again, a reiterated theme from the entirety of the Purgatorium. You want things to be better? Make them better yourself. Now, also, Farisi uh, shows us just how important the power of prayer is to those in Purgatorio. He had only died five years before, as of 1300, uh, the time at which this whole poem takes place, even though Dante was writing it himself, 1308 to 1321. He had died in 1295 or so, so his wife Nella apparently had prayed so much for him that he was shot all the way up to Canto, or sorry, Terra Six, uh, within five years of dying. Very different from Statius taking 1,200 years to totally expiate himself, I've said. All right, Bonaventure of the Luca helped to develop Italian poetry, a lyric poetry, be, uh, be very sensitive to that. He did not create Italian uh, lyric poetry in the same way that uh, Guido Cavalcanti, or excuse me, Guido Guinizelli did. All right, let's get to the last one. Terra 7 out of 7, the last one. We're making good time. First, we see examples of chastity. So just as temperance, the cardinal virtue, uh, expiates the uh, too much vigor having vice of Terra 6, uh, gluttony, so does chastity, which is not a tempore, or excuse me, which is not a theological or a cardinal virtue, expiates the sin of lust. Up here, the lustful are burning as they walk within a raging fire in the final terrace of purgatory. The first example of chastity we see, again, like Mary, as we would expect, says, Virum non cognosco, we then see Diana, who is the pagan equivalent to Mary, essentially a chaste or totally virtuous or pure and virginal goddess who will never take a man as lover. Is she is the pagan version of Mary? Essentially, they're uh, you know, they're parallels. In any case, we then see examples of lust. They're just I just include them here because they're rather dynamic. Sodom and Gomorrah, which gets burned to the ground, of course, for its lustful behavior, which is a nice reference to the fact that it gets burned to the ground. The lustful here are burning, and then also, of course, Pasiphae and the Minotaur, which seems like the you know uh, in a way slightly worse, uh, just because it involves uh, an instance of of course bestiality. And it is uh, just a rather bestial and shocking thing to see, like so many things that we see in Greek mythology. Generally, you do not read Greek mythology to read something you would describe as a normal experience. Usually, you read shocking things, like an eagle abducting your very handsome friend and him being gone forever. Uh, or a woman laying in a wooden effigy with a bull and having a minotaur as a son. Just not the sort of thing you see every day. All right, then the two poets we meet are Guido Guinizelli and Arno Daniel. Recall, Guido Guinizelli, as I've mentioned two times in preparation for this, is, uh, uh, and recall also that we meet these poets in Canto 26, which is the Canto of Poetry in the Inferno, the Paradiso, and the Purgatorio. We met Ulysses and Diomedes in this canto, uh, uh, also encased in flames in the Inferno. We, in Purgatorio, meet Guido and Arno. Arno gets to speak in his native language in the same way that Ulysses got to speak in his native language, which was then translated by Virgil for uh, Dante and for us, and that we will actually see in Paradiso, encased in light, very similar to flame, but in his own virtue, Adam, who was the creator of the first uh, names of creatures, which means he was the creator of language for humans. And so poets create language. They create thought. That's the idea. And in fact, the word poet 
from poein in Greek means to make. And so it's like being a smith, or in my case, the German word for smith, being a schmidt. Uh, all right, well, Guido Guinizelli, he is the founder of Italian lyric poetry, the founding father, and was inspired by a nobling conception of love, and yet seems to have uh, found himself in, with somewhat ignoble uh, ideas on love, since he's amongst the lost fool here at times. Now, he himself gives credit where credit is due to a poet even greater than he is, a poet from a different language tradition, which is a rather radical thing, a French-ish poet from the place of Provence, who speaks Provençal, named Arnaud Daniel, who is the only character in the entire poetry who has his words left untranslated, even though those untranslated words are unique to Dante and don't come from his work himself. So Dante, like with so many of these characters, writes in the words, but his claim is that these words would have been original to Arnaud, and so he gets to speak in his language because Dante could not possibly translate the beauty of Arnaud's language. In any case, Arnaud Daniel also invented a type of poem called the Sestina, and that's really the last thing I need to know about him. All right, third and final dream that Dante has before ascending now to terrestrial paradise outside of the seven uh, uh, battlegrounds of the vicious terraces. His third and final dream on the Mount of Purgatory is as clear and as tranquil as the first two dreams were fraught with violent and sexual angst. Ganymede's abduction in Canto 9 due to his beauty and the siren's uh, 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 sensual uh, ugliness, but then beauty when uh, being exposed to a song in Canto 19. And so in Canto 27, we have this third dream, a dream of uh, uh, Rachel and Leah. And having witnessed the painful purgations of all seven terraces, in particular having experienced for himself the searing heat of lust, Dante now sees in a dream of scene of pastoral calm. He sees young and beautiful Leah gathering flowers. He sees Rachel looking into a mirror, reflecting on herself. They represent two different types of life, the active and the speculative. Recall that Dante had himself, like Aristotle, believed that these two types of life went together to some extent, but that the speculative or reflective life was greater than the practical life. But now he seems to have matured and thinks that they are both part of the same coin, that they are two halves to one good, excellent life. Recall that Leah, as somebody working with her hands, represents the practical or active life, and uh, Rachel, as someone who is literally uh, looking at herself in a mirror, it represents the reflective life. Alright, we didn't get to the divine terrace because we didn't have time to get to the divine procession. Luckily, you have an entire lecture on that. That is on you to study tonight.